0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 366, Move or You Will Be Moved, Part 1. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Amanda, Cody, and Alex for signing up already. The summer of 1051 must have felt like some sort of nightmare. A French aristocrat rode into Dover, picked a fight, and then slaughtered the local townsfolk. And that man's cousin, the King of England, told the townsfolk's lord, Earl Godwin of Wessex, to go back there and finish the job by butchering his own people on behalf of that French aristocrat. The peasants and townsfolk, the average people that would have been you and me in this story, were completely at the mercy of these noblemen. And their lives were being used to wage petty, backstabbing power struggles in a court that they would never see. And even for medieval England, what King Edward was demanding here, that Godwin go and kill his own people, was beyond the pale. And it's hard to look at the command as anything less than the king abandoning his duties to his people and instead choosing to satisfy his desire to hurt his chief counselor a chief counsellor, I should remind you, who had played a large role in getting Edward on the throne. In fact, some sources indicate that it was Godwin's arguments that had won over the Witan at the crucial moment. And then that Witan had asked Godwin himself to go to Normandy and bring Edward back to England to be crowned. And it must have been a decision that Godwin was now bitterly regretting. Because Godwin, for all his faults, was well-regarded in England as an honorable and duty-bound man. It was these same qualities that made him popular with Canute, and he remained popular enough that he was able to keep and expand his power throughout the reigns of the three following monarchs. Even the Vida Edwardi, which was intended to put a shine on King Edward's reign, tells us that Godwin was intelligent, courageous, eloquent, kind to his subordinates, gentle to the common folk, and a man who believed in enacting justice and protecting the rights of the people. When it came to English honor culture, you really could not complain about Godwin. He walked the walk. So with his king demanding that Godwin go and kill his own people, what was an honorable earl supposed to do? Anglo-Saxon honor culture didn't have an answer for this. I mean, Godwin was duty and honor bound to obey his king, but he was also duty and honor bound to protect his people. And possibly more to the point, if he carried out the king's wishes, Godwin would seriously harm his family's financial well-being because a lot of money came from the very same lands that the king wanted Godwin to declare war on. But then again, if he didn't carry out the king's wishes, Godwin could get fined. And that's not like a parking ticket kind of fine. Godwin could lose titles, and he could also lose the wealth-generated lands that came with those titles. He could even be exiled or killed if King Edward felt like it. So Godwin had no good options here. The king's command was clearly unjust, and it would have run contrary to English honor culture. But it also was from the king. Now, this wasn't the first time that the crown had ordered something this vicious and unjust. Only 10 years earlier, Edward's predecessor, King Harthacnut, had ordered his earls to ravage the people of Worcester. And Florence of Worcester tells us that the earls, which included Godwin, carried out the order. Now, ultimately, the massacre of 1041 would have been much worse, but the local bishop had given people enough warning that many of them had a chance to escape. But there were people in Worcester who were cut down by their own nobility who were acting on orders from their own king. So there was precedent for this behavior, which meant that while Edward's command was vicious and shocking and technically against honor culture, honor culture had failed to prevent something like this in the past. And Worcester had proven that even nobles who were known for their honor and duty to their subjects would obey authority over honor when push came to shove. However, there were some key differences between the situation at Worcester and the situation at Dover. The situation at Worcester had begun when people attacked officers of the king, whereas the people of Dover had been defending themselves from a company of Frenchmen. Furthermore, Worcester was in Mercia, those were Earl Leofridge's lands, and Earl Leofridge agreed personally to King Harthacnut's command. But for Godwin, this was a new situation, because he was duty-bound to the people of Dover in a way that he was not duty-bound to the people of Worcester. And finally, there was the fact that King Edward wasn't King Harthacnut. Edward was weak, he was unpopular, and every day he was proving to be his father's son. There's also the little matter that Godwin now commanded nearly all of the forces in the south. So Dover wasn't Worcester, not for Godwin. And so, Godwin refused the king's decree. And King Edward didn't take it well. And actually, if you look at this from his perspective, it's not hard to see why. Earl Godwin, right from the start, had been focused on internal affairs. That was what made him such a good chief counselor. It also was what made him the natural choice to lead England whenever Canute left to handle matters in Scandinavia. Earl Godwin's main concern was with what went on within the borders of England. King Edward, on the other hand, was focused on matters outside of the kingdom. And I'm sure a big part of this stemmed from the fact that he spent most of his life living outside of England. And sure enough, Edward's early reign was focused on developing a good relationship with foreign political powers, like King Henry I of France, or Emperor Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire. But there was more than just making friends going on here. The fact was that for most of Edward's reign thus far, England was under a sustained threat from its neighbors. And in particular, Scandinavia, Flanders, and Normandy all posed a serious threat to the House of Wessex, and its control over the English crown. Now, the danger of Scandinavia had recently receded, thanks to the death of King Magnus, and the resulting conflict between Denmark and Norway. But Flanders and Normandy were still very close by, and a significant problem. Flanders, in particular, was a powerhouse at this time. And actually, Count Baldwin V was far more powerful than Duke William of Normandy. And his posture towards England and his cozy relationship with pretty much anyone that King Edward disliked meant that he was likely Edward's biggest concern. And to begin with, Normandy was probably less of an issue, not just because of their relative power, but also because Edward had close ties to the region. But it would have been clear to him by now that Normandy was taking an interest in the Kingdom of England. And thanks to Edward's years in exile there, It meant that Edward had quite a lot of social and political debts to the Norman nobility, which meant that functionally, England was in debt to Normandy, and Duke William was the kind of guy who would come to collect sooner or later. Then things got worse in 1049. Duke William of Normandy announced that he was taking a wife, Matilda, the daughter of Count Baldwin of Flanders. And this was all part of him forming an alliance with Flanders. So with just a few church bells, the two biggest threats to England were now allies. And there's a good chance that it was this exact alliance that forced Edward to focus on protecting his eastern flank. Because regardless of what later Norman writers said, the fact was that when Edward was in exile in France, William was young and not a particularly important duke. And even when he got older and Edward took the throne of England, William really wasn't all that much of a threat. At least, he wasn't until this wedding. This marriage to the daughter of the Count of Flanders and the alliance that came with it elevated William to the big leagues. And now, with this alliance, Flanders and Normandy were an enormous threat to England. But the two newly allied territories didn't share a border. And there were actually three regions that sat between them. Boulogne, Ponthieu, and Vexon. And here's where Boulogne's Count Eustace II becomes very important. You see, Eustace was King Edward's brother-in-law. But more importantly, Eustace was related to Count Hugh II of Pontieu, And his son-in-law was the Count of Vexon. So all three regions were linked directly to Count Eustace of Boulogne. And Count Eustace's familial relationship to Edward meant that he was England's best chance if the king hoped to keep Normandy and Flanders physically separated and also discourage any future aggressive actions by them. Furthermore, some sources indicate that Count Eustace II might have had a daughter of marriageable age during this period. And if she existed... She would have been a descendant of both Duke Richard II of Normandy and King Athelred of England. So she was of the right social class for a royal marriage, and if the King of England could marry this daughter, then England would be tied not only to those three critical French territories of Boulogne, Pontieu, and Vexon, but it would also go a long way in forming a closer alliance with Normandy. And closer bonds with Normandy just happened to be one of the goals of King Edward's chief advisor, Archbishop Robert of Jumiège. And also, with a union like this, we might even end up with an heir. An heir who would have been linked to the House of Normandy. Count Eustace would have been central to any plan to build an alliance against Flanders and whatever might be coming out of Scandinavia in the future. And a marriage with Eustace's daughter would also potentially be a solution to the issue of succession, and one that would make Edward's Norman benefactors, who just happened to hold a lot of debt over the king, really happy. But you might remember that there was one little problem with this plan. Edward was married to Earl Godwin's daughter. Not only that, but Earl Godwin had his own plan for securing England's safety. He thought that the best way forward was for the kingdom to align with Flanders and Denmark. And actually, Godwin's own cousin was sitting on the throne of Denmark. And also, one of Godwin's sons, Tostig, married into the ruling family of Flanders, almost certainly as part of that effort to bind England and Flanders closer. So what all this means is that the policy positions of Godwin and Edward were in direct opposition So if you're King Edward and the key player of your foreign policy came along and said that Godwin's folks attacked him and his men when they were just looking for a bed and breakfast, and this came right on the heels of some really crazy being pulled by some of Godwin's kids up to and including kinslaying. And on top of all that, Godwin had just married his son into the line that you and your allies felt was one of the biggest threats to your rule. Well, if you were Edward you might just think that this attack in Dover was part of some larger scheme and Godwin was organizing against the crown. And here's the thing about honor culture. King Edward was living in an honor culture just as much as Earl Godwin. And in reality, honor cultures are not as romantic to live under as you might imagine. A lot of the demands of honor culture result in, for lack of a better term, high-maintenance behavior. In these societies, honor is tantamount to how you navigate through culture, which paradoxically makes honor a very brittle and fragile thing. Challenges or slights to one's honor cannot be tolerated in these societies, which means that responses to those threats tend to get hyperdramatic. It's sort of like that one Captain America movie, where Iron Man and Captain America get all pissed at each other, and instead of sitting down and clarifying a few points, They instead start a civil war. And that's because the facts really weren't the point here. It was the perceived slight to their super honor. That's why they didn't sit down and talk through basic stuff. Like, you know, how it's unreasonable to hold people responsible for their actions when they've been brainwashed by super Nazis. Or how registration is actually super creepy. No, honor was lost, and now it had to be restored at all costs. Period. And this dynamic is a classic feature of honor cultures. So when Count Eustace II claimed that the Godwins attacked him, him, the king's own cousin, and the key figure in Edward's foreign policy plans, well, this wasn't just some random gang fight. This was a direct attack on Edward's authority. It was an attack on Edward's honor. So of course, the king went through the roof. And of course, he demanded that Godwin carry out an act that would prove his loyalty to the crown. And of course, the act he demanded was extreme. It had to be. And then, when Godwin refused, well, that was another attack on the king's honor. And so Edward escalated. The king ordered his council to gather with him at Gloucester. And there, they would decide what to do with Earl Godwin. And the choice of Gloucester as a place for the council was deliberate, and it carried a message. Because that town was in West Saxon territory, Godwin's territory. In fact, Godwin's family had an estate only a dozen miles away. So the council was going to meet and decide Godwin's fate on Godwin's own land. Shortly afterwards, we're told that Earl Leofric of Mercia and Earl Seward of Northumbria mobilized a portion of their military forces and made their way to Gloucester. And then the Vita Edwardi Regis adds that King Edward's Norman ally, the newly ordained Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert of Jumiege, went one step further. And he argued that the king should preemptively arrest Godwin. The Archbishop alleged that Earl Godwin had despoiled Canterbury and other estates. And he added that Godwin was responsible for killing the king's brother, Alfred, and that Godwin wasn't done with murder yet because he was planning on killing King Edward as well. Now, these were serious allegations, if they were true, but most of them probably weren't true. But that really didn't matter because what was happening here was a direct conflict between two factions in the English court. There was the pro-Normandy faction, which included the king and many of his Norman and French friends, as well as their allies. And then there was the Flanders-Danish-English faction, headed up by Godwin and bolstered by his many, many connections throughout the regions. These two factions had been locked in somewhat of a cold war for quite a while. But now, thanks in large part to Godwin's idiot son, things had come to a head. And the Norman Archbishop of Canterbury was trying to lay down the last few pieces that were needed to oust the Flanders English faction by giving King Edward every reason he might need to get rid of Godwin for good. And once the Anglo-Saxon honor culture collided with international intrigue, there really was no good way to stop the ball from rolling. But full credit to Godwin here. He really did try. He and his sons actually tried to do what the Avengers should have done from the start. The Earl, accompanied by his sons, attempted to reach the king and speak with him and resolve the conflict that was now threatening the stability of the kingdom, and also the longevity of Godwin family members. But they were turned away. Version E of the Chronicle tells us that Count Eustace of Boulogne took the same position as Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, namely that Godwin was a traitor and that he intended to kill the king. And on the strength of those accusations, the Godwins were barred from meeting with the king. Version E goes on to tell us that the foreigners, meaning Count Eustace II and his soldiers, marched on swaying Godwinson's territory of Hereford, and once there, they built a fort. Then they used that fort to inflict, quote, every possible injury and insult upon the king's men in those parts, end quote. Now, every possible injury and insult is pretty clear. They were ravaging and pillaging and doing everything awful they could imagine. But the last part of it seems a little confusing. The part about the king's men. Why would the king's ally, Eustace, attack the king's men? Well, in this case, the scribes are being evasive. The truth is that the scribes repeatedly try to put distance between Eustace and the king. And so here, what they're doing is they're clearly relying on a technicality. Namely, that everyone in England is technically a king's man. But the reality of what version E is describing is that the king's ally, Count Eustace, took his men to Swain's territory and were ravaging Swain's people. Which means that if version E is correct, not only were the Godwins barred from meeting with a king, and thus barred from the council that was taking place in their lands and that would be determining their fate. But the king's French friends were now also invading, occupying, and pillaging the lands that were held by the Godwins. And Earl Godwin himself likely noticed that all of this was happening less than a year after King Edward disbanded and dispersed the English fleet at Sandwich. And it was an English fleet that had been under Godwin's personal command. Now, there were straightforward political reasons for why this happened. The threat that the fleet was meant to deal with was no longer an issue. Specifically, it looks like King Edward and Duke William of Normandy had established some sort of diplomatic treaty. And that was likely a big accomplishment for Edward, and critically, it meant that that grand fleet blockading entry to England was no longer necessary. But because that fleet was also under Godwin's control, it meant that Godwin had been holding a significant amount of military power so long as he had those boats and those soldiers, which he didn't anymore. And mere months after those boats and soldiers were taken from him, his towns were being ravaged and occupied by the King's French friends. And I'm sure that for the Godwins, it was increasingly looking like Dover wasn't an accident. It was very much looking like the attack on the townsfolk of Dover was an intentional provocation by the pro-Normandy faction, and it may have been the plan all along. And the Godwins, like King Edward, lived in an honor culture, which meant that this demanded a response. You cannot live in such a society and have your honor challenged in this way. You had to do something. And so the Godwins did what honor demanded. They escalated. Earl Godwin sent messengers to his thanes throughout Wessex and ordered anyone who owed him fealty to gather their forces and join him at Langtree, near the border of Wessex and Cornwall. His son, Harold Godwinson, did the same and gathered the forces of East Anglia and brought them to Langtree. Swain Godwinson actually seems to have done his job for once and he gathered forces from Herefordshire and brought them to Langtree. The Chronicle tells us that Godwin's army was beyond count. And they were squaring off against the king. Which sounds shocking. But Edward was the unpopular son of an unpopular king. He was also culturally foreign. And he was packing English positions of power with Normans. And he was now apparently using foreign soldiers to raid English towns. So I don't think Unferth needed a lot of persuading to join this fight at this point. And once everyone was at Langtree, Earl Godwin and his sons sent a message to the king. They said that the king must arrest Count Eustace II, as well as all of his men and the Frenchmen who were sat at that fort in Herefordshire and then hand them over to Earl Godwin to meet English justice. They added that if King Edward failed to do this, then Earl Godwin and his forces were prepared to meet the king and his friends in battle. Godwin, Earl Harold and Earl Swain then moved their army to Beverston, just 15 miles south of Gloucester, meaning 15 miles south of the council. This was bad for Edward, especially considering that when the king commanded Leofritch and Seward to come and bring men with them, the Chronicle tells us that they brought a moderate amount probably a normal amount of soldiers to provide security when attending a king's council, and perhaps a few to spare. But they hadn't brought nearly enough to fight a civil fucking war. And while Archbishop Robert might have been telling tales about Godwin's intentions to kill the king at the start of the council, by this point, it probably seemed like it might be true. And as it dawned on the king's earls just how bad this situation had become, they responded by escalating the earls of the council summoned the full army of Mercia and Northumbria to protect their king. Even Ralph, the newly appointed earl of the Eastern Midlands, summoned his full fyrd and marched them to Gloucester. There was a massive response to this. And while he was waiting for his reinforcements, Edward negotiated with the Godwins. And taking hints from the chronicle, it seems like he was pretty reasonable about it. Because he had to be. Those reinforcements were taking longer than expected to arrive and he was dangerously exposed. But once the armies were there, the king's posture changed. Negotiations were over. And now, the king's advisors, likely as Norman courtiers, advised him to attack the Godwins. So now he had two massive English armies milling around Gloucestershire, each of them ready for war. And here, the balance of power shifted against Godwin. Godwin didn't want a civil war. He'd spent his life trying to hold the kingdom together, and it's possible that he assumed that Edward felt the same way. But England wasn't Edward's home. He'd spent more time in France than on this island, which was basically foreign to him. These were his subjects by law, but he didn't know them. The fact was, Count Eustace II was more valuable to Edward than Godwin. His support was critical for Edward's international ambitions. He was also family. The Godwins, by contrast, had been a constant thorn in his side and also a significant barrier to his progress and probably most importantly, they'd challenged his authority and his honor, realizing that the king might follow through and fight a civil war. Godwin and his massive southern army froze, but suddenly, King Edward faced a problem himself; his own earls looked across the field and realized exactly what they sat on the precipice of. This wasn't just the furred. These armies had nobles in them. A lot of nobles. In fact, most of the nobles of England were here, in one army or the other. All of their best warriors and fighting men were here, and no army had a clear advantage. When the fighting started, if it started, it would be brutal. It could last hours or even days. The casualties would be extensive, and they would go right up to the most powerful people in England. Now, looking at the sources, it seems that King Edward and his cousin, Count Eustace II, were totally ready to fight a civil war on English soil. And actually, Count Eustace kind of got an early start on the task when he occupied and ravaged Hereford and Dover. Meanwhile, King Edward's Norman advisor, Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, was doing all he could to pour fuel on the fire, regardless of the risk that large numbers of the English nobility would likely be killed in the fighting. Or maybe, especially, because a large number of English nobles would likely be killed in the fighting. That outcome might have been just fine with Edward and his Norman friends, because those empty spots on the council could easily be filled with people that Edward and his inner council of French advisors trusted. And that fact may have been rapidly dawning on the loyal English earls. So they urged King Edward to avoid war, warning that open battle with Godwin was extremely risky and that even a victory would leave England exposed to other civil wars or even foreign invasion. And so the king's forces too froze. The senior English members of the king's council, who were likely earls Leofrich and Seward, urged the king to end this matter before it began, begging him to impose the king's peace and extend his friendship to both sides of this conflict. At least that's what the sources tell us. But the Chronicle is once again being really cute here with their wording because the scribes imply that the king was some sort of neutral arbiter who was concerned with the welfare of all and that this conflict was between two groups that the king and his council were apparently not a part of. The Chronicle pretends that this was basically a matter between Count Eustace and Earl Godwin. And the scribes actually go on to attempt to place blame on this event, largely on Count Eustace, Robert of Jumièges, and a Norman knight named Osborne Pentecost. But Eustace didn't have the forces necessary to stop Godwin. He didn't even have the forces necessary to stop the people of Dover. And if they went and fought a civil war, I don't think that Archbishop Robert and Osborne were likely to tip the scales there. No, this was a conflict that was ultimately between King Edward and Earl Godwin. They each had their own supporters, many of whom had their own agendas, but it was those two who were ultimately in conflict. And so to have the council urging the king to offer friendship to both sides is a bit weird. But the scribes were likely not eager to talk about how the king was stoking a civil war in a fit of pique just over being told no, I'm guessing they also didn't want to talk about how he's enlisting his French friends to join in this tantrum by raiding English towns. But luckily for everyone who were standing in the fields of Gloucestershire, King Edward and Count Eustace couldn't start this on their own. They had to listen to the council because it was the council who ultimately commanded most of the army that had come to the king's aid. Now, of course, Godwin's demands on the king could not be met. Nothing in English or Norman politics, or even culture, would allow the king to agree to surrender or to the handing over of Eustace. Culturally and politically, that would have been disastrous for Edward, and considering Eustace's position, it could even expose England to invasion. But at the same time, the senior earls knew that a civil war would be equally disastrous. So the council took extreme measures they decided to handle this conflict like lawyers. They decided that there would be a second Witan at London. And this Witan would be held in two weeks time on September 21st, the autumnal equinox. There, Godwin and his sons would have the opportunity to defend themselves. And then the council would determine their fate. Version D of the Chronicle tells us that the council also suggested an exchange of hostages and the Godwins agreed to that demand. It appears that Swain Godwinson's son, Hakon, and one of Earl Godwin's sons, Wulfnoth Godwinson, were handed over to the king as an assurance of their good intentions. But if Godwin and his sons were waiting for the other side to offer hostages, they were probably waiting a long time, because there's no record of the Godwins receiving any hostages of their own. Because while the scribes do their best to imply that this was a conflict between lesser nobles, the fact was that this was a fight between the king and Earl Godwin. And Edward clearly had the upper hand here. Not to mention that he was the king and he was under no obligation to provide hostages to his subordinate. He had absolutely no reason to provide Godwin leverage or anything else. So poor Wolfnoth Godwinson and Hakon Swainson were handed over, and all Earl Godwin got in return was apparently the assurance that the king wouldn't kill him and his entire family. At least not today. Then, once the hostages were handed over, King Edward made one more command. Swain Godwinson was exiled from England. For life. He would forever be an outlaw on English soil. And it was probably at this point that Godwin realized he'd made a terrible mistake. Hello, darkness, my old friend. If you have any questions, comments, I've or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us because on social media. Our Reddit community is starting to be a lot of fun. You should check it out. And you can find links to all Let of the communities by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and scrolling through the community the section. Thanks for listening. That was planted in my brain Still remember